The Square Peg Podcast. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Keith Johnson, owner of Camino Tattoo Studio, has been a professional licensed tattoo artist in Las Cruces since 2000. He does everything from American traditional to photorealistic tattooing, and he works by appointment only. Email him today to get your custom tattoo. You can find him at CaminoTattooStudio.com or from the bio in the link at www.CaminoTattooStudio.com. Of course, you can also find Camino Tattoo Studio on Instagram and Facebook. And just a little personal note for me, um, turning 48 here real soon, didn't get my first tattoo until about two years ago. And um, while Keith didn't do that one, he's done three since then. And uh, I've been going through this kind of transition, you know, in my later 40s, if you will, and uh, made some changes to my fitness, to my, my supplementation and my diet. And I've seen some big changes in my body. And I'll tell you, I've never loved my body. I probably never will. But with the changes I've made and the artwork that Keith has uh, been able to put on my body, learning to hate it a little bit less every day. My guess so if today you want to be uh, like me young age, and get some good artwork on you, give, give Keith but it wasn't a, until an email he was in his 20s uh, and, and go get your tattoo. That he finally received his official diagnosis. George Brooks has turned his own struggles into a campaign to advocate for others, as well as working to remove the stigma associated with mental illness. George Brooks, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm hanging in there. How's your 2022 so far? What's it like in the DFW? Uh, dealing with a touch of COVID right now, but other than that, I'm okay. Oh, my goodness. Do we know which strain? I sure don't. I hope it's not the, the new one, but uh, it, it's starting to kind of take effect now. So. Uh-oh, we but, better hurry uh, through sure, this I'm before sure you start getting sick. Yeah, I, I am. I'm scared to go to the doctor in the first thing in the morning. Well, I'm glad you're able to be here with us today because this is a pretty interesting topic, and I'm glad you reached out to us. I'm really, really happy to talk to you about this because, um, you know, you're not the first and won't be the last uh, person this season to uh, kind of touch on some of these issues we're talking about. And, and I'm a big believer uh, in removing the, the stigma of mental illness. Um, you've said that as early as three to four years of age, uh, you noticed yes. that you were different. Can you talk about that? Uh, it was more around that age, uh, a feeling of um, just knowing that, and this is going to sound strange being that young, but knowing that your reactions weren't kind of uh, the equivalent of everyone else's, that proportionately they were a little bit different. Um, I noticed at a young age that I processed things differently emotionally. Um, I also had some issues going up as far as interesting relationships with people, with my father. Um, he was a hard man. <laughs> that led a lot in, into a lot of the ways that I am today. Uh, he was he was verbally abusive, pretty brutally, very brutally, and that had a lot to do with with 
with um, me recognizing things at an early age, knowing that wasn't normal, uh, knowing the effect it had on me at eight and nine. I remember nine years old being suicidal, being depressed at that early age. Like actually, um, and you knew what it was. You knew what suicide was. Oh, I, oh, I definitely knew. I, I knew. I knew. Um, I, I I don't know how I knew. I just knew. Uh, I actually, uh, my 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 mother was pretty proactive. Got me to a psychiatrist pretty early on, probably by age ten. And also during that age, um, I started developing a lot of congenital health problems. So from about age five on up, I was on blood pressure meds. I uh, had heart heart defects, uh, lung issues I was born with. So me coming up, having to deal with the physical issues and those limitations alongside with the the mental wellness issues and growing up uh, really made my youth and adolescence unique and it's something now that I'm grateful for. Um, but back to my childhood, I had that going on and also there there were there were long periods where we you know, where we lived in poverty. I mean, not poverty in the sense that we don't have a latest car, but I mean we didn't have a car. We I remember one time we went about a year without running water or electricity. So those are the kind of things I had to deal with coming up and that's up till about age what, twelve or thirteen. Well, that I can go, remember. If you don't mind, George, can we go back uh, when you're three years old? Well, I, something I find interesting now, uh, one thing I want you to consider, and you can answer it kind of, you know, however, whenever you want, what, in whichever order. But is there any reason to believe that your your physical health problems with the high blood pressure and the lungs and the heart had any effect uh, or w- would it have a causal relationship at all with, with your mental or emotional health? I was born two months early. I know my pregnancy was difficult, so I was not supposed to make it. So it would not surprise me if the two are somehow linked in the sense that maybe the physical problems maybe led to a chemical imbalance in the brain or something uh, physical with the brain that may have led to it. And also, I, I do recognize that there is a strong component of it that is genetic. Um, it's also environmental and conditional. So it was just sort of a perfect storm for me. Um, I'm also an insulin-dependent diabetic, and it was sort of the same deal with that. So I kind of caught it from both ends at an early age, and I used it to develop, to develop myself into the person that I am today over my, my young adult life. Well, that certainly is a lot to deal with for anybody, especially for a small child. Now, going back, you talked about being about three or four years old. Um, do you remember any specific ways that your emotional uh, and mental health issues manifest themselves that you can remember outwardly? I did not speak a lot uh, when, when I was coming up. Um, a lot of my father didn't believe in me speaking a lot. He didn't believe in me and talking a lot, just out in public, kind of casually. So I, I didn't talk a lot. Um, I would go places and people would think I was mute. So I was very introverted, uh, highly creative. Um, it would manifest itself in ways that I noticed at that age is that I was afraid to go out and take chances because of the self-esteem and because with all those health problems, you have such self-doubt and, and being so young and dealing with that made it, made it difficult to really kind of enjoy that part of childhood, you know, that kind of, that, that, that carefree feeling. So I was always kind of weighed down by that. So I, I try to make sure that, that now in my life, I make sure that people enjoy that part of their life, their life because I, I, not that I took it for granted, I just didn't have it. 
So I try to make sure that I, that the things that I missed out on in life and the things I didn't have, that those around me, not just loved ones, can experience. Um, you know, uh, I'm curious about your family structure. Did you have siblings, and did you have a mother that at least was able to balance out some of the harsh and abusive uh, behaviors of your father? Yeah, I grew up in two. Both my parents were married, two family households, three sisters. Um, yeah, I mean, my father wasn't physically abusive. He, he just, you know, I, I looked at him harshly, hard, a lot harsher when I was younger until I became a father of my own. Um, and not that I excuse a lot of what he did, but I understood it better. He was just trying to make sure that I was not uh, going to be cannon fodder for the world. <laughs> you know, him, him, you know, I put myself in his shoes. Um, him, him having a son that was, that was basically an, an ill child and introverted and kind of soft-spoken, it probably scared him. And, uh, and not that I excuse it, but I can at least try to understand it because I will say this, my father was an excellent grandfather. I mean, <laughs> wonderful. And that, that, that took so much of that, that, not that I really held aggression toward him or venom or anything, because that's my father, but it took a lot of that edge off, because I was like, wow, he is really a great grandfather. And we became closer, and that helped a lot of healing in my life and led me to the point where I am right now with my nonprofit to where I can try to take those lessons and share them with other people and improve the community that I live in. Well, that doesn't sound too out of the ordinary as far as uh, you know the relationship or, or the type of person you see your your parents or, or a father as, as a, and then when they become a, a grandparent, them kind of becoming a little bit of a softy. And I'm beginning to suspect that some of what you dealt with is uh, pretty relatable for a lot of people our age. How old are you? Um, it, it, which part? How old are you now? Uh, I'm 43 now. Okay, I'm 43. So- My father passed a few years ago uh, due to cancer. And, uh, you know, we, 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 I found with a lot of people, especially my contemporaries that have, do have daddy issues, <laughs> um, they don't oftentimes get the chance to resolve those. Right. And I'm so glad that I got a chance to sit down with them and have those talks uh, and, and, and get those things resolved before it was too late. So I do urge people, you know, go ahead and have those talks with people in your life, especially if you've had a difficult relationship and get an understanding because there are things that you may not know that are at play. Do that for your own healing. Well, I think Don't it's... Think about the- I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm glad you got that type of closure because not all of us get to do that. And, and I just got to thinking that, you know, we're a, you and I are about the same age. I'm a few years older than you. But, um, you know, I think that our fathers grew up in a time and, and they parented in a way that they what was acceptable for that time. And, and, and maybe some of the ways that they parented in the 1980s uh, are definitely not it would be frowned upon today. And I think we can chalk some of that up as to being a kind of generational stuff. But, you know, you also yeah, it, it go ahead. And, and one thing I've learned to appreciate is, is, is more of what he was trying to do, you know, and that's the thing about parenting. There's no manual to this. It's not. I mean, so we, we you know, every parent, good, bad, different, whatever, we all kind of learn by the seat of our pants, you know, and we either helped or hindered by the parenting we received. So, but along that also, uh, about 12, age 12 or 13, my parents divorced, and so I really didn't. You know, I had interaction with my father, but not that much. So that's when my um, mental illness really kicked in and my experiences with the public American school system. 
started and i want to back up just a little bit because something that's really important i think that may have may be relatable a little bit later on uh you talked a little bit about having an eating disorder at age nine now i can identify that that's about the age when i started dealing with weight issues and you know um tell, tell me a little bit about that now you talked about having type 1 diabetes which we know can can contribute to to weight problems what exactly were you dealing with at that time do you know Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I was eating to deal with my pain. Instead of dealing with it, I was eating to deal with my shame, uh, with my loneliness, with with all those emotions, pent up emotions. Started about age five. Started gaining a little, a little out of weight. So food pretty much became my my vice. Uh, you know, and it was my best friend that didn't judge. Um, you know, culturally, we eat when we're happy, we eat when we're sad. It's the one thing that's there that's legal that we can kind of get our hands on. So about eighth grade, I weighed about 280. I was, I was a, I was a, I was a big boy. And that, that played a lot to my health, to my joints, um, heart problems, things at age 13, 14, I was dealing with. Uh, so I dealt with that through high school. And with that, and my mental health worsened, uh, back during that time, if you were under, say, if you were not an adult, they, you weren't, they did not diagnose you as being bipolar. They didn't think that was an actual thing during that time. Well, now they do. So, um, that's what was going on with me at the time, and I really could not function in school. Um, I'd always been a good student, uh, pretty intelligent. Love learning, but just could not deal with the social pressure, could not deal with the anxiety of going, couldn't deal with my weight, couldn't deal with any of the problems. So instead of, 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 of doing the conventional thing, uh, instead of going to school, I'll go to the library and study all day. I did that up until, you know, all up through high school, um, until about college. And you still uh, didn't have a diagnosis I, yet, right? No, I was seeing people regularly, but like I said, during that time, the only thing they really kind of hopped on was depression and the weight. Uh, I, 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 during my adolescence, I did go inpatient about three or four times, uh, the longest stretch being about three months. And they just treated the depression, but they, they weren't treating the, the, uh, the mania. They weren't treating the PTSD that I was later diagnosed with or the disassociative identity disorder. And I knew all these things were going on, but at that time, and being so young and not having a, a name for them or knowing the proper way to describe them, uh, it, it was hard to get a diagnosis. And actually, when I was officially diagnosed at age 25, it took about another at least 10 years to find a cocktail of, of medications that, that worked on it. So um, went through college okay. That went okay. Got married. Um, had gastric bypass surgery in 2002. And so you were how old? Uh, I was probably about 23. And how, uh, how, how heavy were you at that time? I was about, probably about 350. Okay, and how tall are you? And, uh, I'm only about 5'6". Okay, yeah. so you were significantly, I, I think probably, safe to say yeah. you were morbidly obese at that time. Oh, yeah, yeah. All my life, from about 5, I, I dealt with it. And that's why uh, one of the things I try to do now is try to counsel kids that are dealing with weight um, and do some things like that. And once I had surgery done, uh, my health did improve. I got very active. I got down to about 150. But I noticed that while my physical health improved, it seemed like my mental health got worse. And I realized it was because now I don't have that 
that weight to hide behind. I don't have that, right. you know, I can't eat like I used to, so now I have to deal with this stuff. Well, hey, George, I want to talk oh. to you, you know, you I, and something I didn't know about you when you mentioned, you know, the gastric bypass. Last season, I interviewed my friend Karina, who's actually a bariatric surgeon here, you know, where I live, and we touched mm-hmm. a little bit on uh, the mental health aspect of it and the need for behavior modification and behavior modification therapy. I mean, you can do surgery on somebody, but that's not necessarily going to keep them from, from the same behaviors that got them morbidly obese in the first place, unless they make themselves very sick by putting too much food in their stomach. Do you remember, was there a mental or behavioral health component to the, the, the services you got from your bariatric surgeon? Well, what I did was that, um, and, and it's funny that you brought, I'm so happy you brought this up. Uh, I started dealing with my mental hangups before my surgery because I knew that if I did not deal, start dealing with those issues with food and, and, and blunting my pain before the surgery, it was going to fail. And, um, you know, so I dealt with that before then. Now, after I had the surgery and I realized, okay, now I got to deal with this, that was different. But I run to a lot of people that, it, you know, ask me advice about the surgery. And I tell them, I, sometimes I actually told people, you may want to wait a couple of years because mentally it's like you're not grasping the fact that once you have the surgery, you don't have a choice. You know, you have to have, have your behavior altered by then because now you eat too much, you could die, you know, too soon after the surgery. Now you really have to put the work in, and that's why I tend to get perturbed when people talk about gastric bypasses being an easy way out, and it's not. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And um, But it, 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 it was part of my path. You know, and it was part of it, it, it helped my mental illness a lot because it made me really have to deal with things. And after that, you know, I was recently married and um, my mental health worsened. So I, I sought more intensive treatment. And for a few years, I was going, I was bouncing from, from, from psychiatrist to psychiatrist. I was on so many different meds and had so many side effects. I didn't know what was working, what wasn't working. There is almost a 10-year gap that I really don't remember um, just trying to get treatment. And during this time, I had multiple organ failure and kidney failure and almost passed away. And during that time, I could no longer work, and I had a new son. So I got depressed and really had um, just let myself go and fell into uh, addiction for a few years, probably about six, seven years, very bad, and just, you know, Totally lost. What were you self-medicating uh, with? Cocaine. That's interesting. Okay. That's interesting because most of the people um, who I've dealt with, and and I don't know if I explained to you what I do with, for a living. I work in the field of public safety, and and you know a lot of people, unfortunately, and we're going to get to this because I know you do some advocacy in this in this area. A lot of people who get tied up in the criminal justice system are, are self-medicating and dealing with trauma and mental illness, and it's most often right. methamphetamine and heroin. Uh, in my experience, how did you get? How did you get introduced to cocaine, and and how did it? Tell me how it helped you. I've been around it all my life. I mean, I've I'd known people that used it. You know, I've kind of been familiar with it. You know, and uh, stuff like that, and um, just tried it. Just was around some people in the neighborhood and say, well, what you know, what the hey, I'm already miserable enough. This can't make it any worse. And I realized it wasn't making anything better. It was just doubling the pain. So when I did finally hit uh, my rock bottom in summer of 2017, uh, 
my health had really fallen. Everything really deteriorated, and my wife and I actually split up. And um, that's when I started to to that's that's when I started to to find myself again. That's when I started to to look into my purpose and what it is I needed to be doing and why I was in the position that I was in. And I started thinking about what people had told me and what they thought I could do to help people. And they felt that through my experiences with mental health and, and substance abuse, I could act as an advocate. So that's what I chose to do. Well, let's, and I, I, I want to yeah. go back because I think we skipped over something really important. You talked yeah. about, you know, self-medicating and hitting rock bottom in 2017. You had gotten a diagnosis fairly a number of years before that, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. Let's, let's talk about your diagnosis and how you came to that. Oh, wow. Um, my oldest son, Josh, was about a year old, and I was, you know, newly married and feeling a lot of pressure, and my physical health started feeling. And I started sort of to feel my decline, and that's when things started getting worse, and I just remember feeling guilty for my son for being a failure for him. I don't know why. I, I do know why now why I felt that way. But it, it just started just a slippery slope. It was just life happened, and it, it's, it's, it's me letting it happen to me. Uh, I can't I can't put what happened to me on anyone else. It's not it's not anyone's fault. It's not society's fault. It's not even really my fault. It's just circumstance. It is how you deal with it, and it's not so much what happens to you in life. It's how you deal with it. So I had diagnosis several years before. It's just a matter of coping with it, and that's really why why I'm glad that mental illness is getting the attention it deserves because it is debilitating, and actually it's painful. Being bipolar is is painful every day. It's hard every day. It's a struggle every day. So anything that I can do to help people just be able to make a living because it's almost impossible to work with severe bipolar disorder or a severe mental illness just by virtue of the fact it's hard to function every day. Well, you know, and, the bipolar is not your only diagnosis, right? No, it's not. You it's not. It's just sort of the elephant in the room. It's it's it's, it's a little bit. <laughs> no, I'm sorry for this. It's a little bit easier just to say that and say the that and the PTSD and the because it, I don't want to be like a laundry list, you know. And I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I, I hate saying I am bipolar, or I hate saying I have bipolar because I, I feel like that identifies it too much with me. I'm just me. Okay. But you have to do that to make that distinction because it, it does help people. So that's why I do it. Well, like, yeah, and look, it, you, you only talk about what you're comfortable talking about, but I know that, you know, there's some of the things that you mentioned that are fairly heavy duty. And um, I don't have a DSM 5 sitting in front of me right here, but I know that oh, yeah. you have to have a significant amount of trauma uh, and have to have dealt with a significant amount of trauma to, to end up with some of those diagnoses. Now, you said you've gotten into advocacy. I want to talk a little bit about, um, and I've watched your YouTube videos. You've talked about, and we all know that there's a, a, a stigma of uh, mental illness, uh, especially among men. Um, you know, I would never hesitate to tell somebody that I'm on blood pre- a medication for my blood pressure, which I am. I'm also on medication right. for high cholesterol. But you know what? If I were right. taking head meds, I might not be so quick to share that with people. because, And, and I'll show you a, a very recent experience I had with somebody. I was talking mm-hmm. to a friend and they were talking about someone they had met on a dating site, and they hadn't actually met this person in person, uh, but they had been communicating on, on the dating site. And when I asked, you know, how come you never, you never met this person, she said something about, and I don't know how this came up, but uh, he was on, and she listed this medis- medication that was for, uh, for schizophrenia. 
uh, which mm-hmm. obviously is a very heavy-duty mental illness. And, you know, on the one hand, I can kind of understand if you only know somebody casually and you know that going in, you might make a decision about how, how close you want to get. But at the same time, it really sucks because, you know, knowing, again, if that person had said they were on medication, if they were taking, you know, insulin for type 1 diabetes, I don't think anybody would have any reservations uh, about yeah. getting involved with somebody like that. Now, in addition to having the, the stigma of mental illness in general uh, among us men, there can be a stigma because we're supposed to be seen as strong and mm-hmm. not have those those flaws, and mental illness can be seen as a weakness. But you also mentioned, uh, as a black man, you have noticed in the black community, uh, there's an extra stigma uh, of mental illness. Talk about your experiences with trying to deal with that and get and, and, and help people to understand and overcome those biases and stigmas. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean... Us being men, we already know what that's like anyway, you know, suck it up, keep going. You know, we do that with our physical health, so you know we do it with our mental health. But in the black community especially, uh, it's it's really, it's re- it's getting better, but you're seen as weak. It's seen as not real. It's seen as, a, as, as something you do for attention. Um, a lot of it is, like when you mentioned schizophrenia, you know, like, even I, at a certain point, had a certain stigma about schizophrenia until I was inpatient with people that were schizophrenic. And a lot of that fear of people with mental illness is because we consume too much media and we don't educate ourselves. We're afraid of it, so we don't go around. We don't volunteer. Uh, for, for example, my father had cancer for two years before he told anybody. So that lets you know if that attitude can, can, can still affect us men when it comes to something like stomach and liver cancer, you know it's going to be a tough hill to climb as far as mental illness, but that's what I work toward by talking about it and talking about my experience and trying to be relatable. And I'm hoping that when people listen to me, they see, well, this guy kind of sounds like me. He didn't sound um, irrational or anything like that. He just sounds like somebody that's dealing with something. Or he, he sounds like somebody who, 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 who's dealing with life like I am. So let's try to do more to make sure that those resources are there to help the mentally ill more as far as medication. Uh, when I was trying to heal myself, I was living in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where I'm originally from. And I moved to Dallas about three years ago. And uh, that is my hometown, but their education system and everything is so ill-equipped to do anything. And I had to move to Dallas to give myself a chance to survive. But now I'm learning what it's like to have those municipal uh, resources, to network with government, to do those things. Not only where I can improve lives here in Dallas, but I do want to go back home to Memphis one day and do some things there because they have problems with crime and poverty. And people don't realize crime and poverty are tied into mental illness. All of this is connected, especially when you talk about impoverished communities. There's, there's no, no doubt, George. I'm glad you brought that up because I talked a little bit about some of the people that I've been exposed to in my professional life uh, dealing with, with uh, self-medicating uh, because of trauma and mental illness and how they end up uh, kind of in that revolving door of the criminal justice system. Now, unfortunately, we've also talked about you know the stigma of mental illness among men, the stigma of uh, mental illness in the black community. And unfortunately, I think we're all aware uh, that, you know, People, persons of color, and, and especially young black men, are, are definitely overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Can you give us? Do you have any 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 statistics or any numbers on what percentage of people in jail or in prison are suffering with mental illness, and 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 what the recidivism rates are? 
Well, as far as recidivism rates in general, I mean, within about three years, I believe it's about 60% of those that are incarcerated end up reincarcerated. And after about eight years, it's more around about 90%. So you're looking at it in about 10 years, 100% of those that are incarcerated will end up reincarcerated in some form or another. So that, that, that speaks directly to the fact that when people are being released back to, into society, their resources are not there to make sure that they are as successful as possible. Now, some people may say, well, they did the crime and da-da-da and da-da-da. That's how fine and good that may be true. I personally don't concern myself with why somebody is locked up when I deal with them on, as far as giving them resources or helping them. I deal with what can I do since now they're released to make sure, one, they don't reoffend, two, they are healthy, and can contribute to society. And that means us doing things like making sure mental health counseling and care and medication is available to transition someone from the institution back out into society, make sure that job training is available, make sure these things are available. And notice I say available and not given, because we can make things available, but we can't make people partake and take advantage of them. Right. I'm all about making things available, but I cannot force you to get the help. George has well, any- things available, you know, that's what we can do, but we have to understand how legal, you know, our criminal justice system is a business, you know, and that's what we're up against. Uh, recidivism is profit. Well, you know, I yeah, mean, we could, we could do a whole, we could do a whole series podcast yeah, series yeah. on that. And unfortunately I know that all too well, uh, to some degree. I'm really curious though, has George, has your socioeconomic status or your economic status and your resources, had any impact on your ability to seek treatment uh, for your for any any mental health conditions? I, I can honestly say that I don't believe. And I'm looking back over the totality of my whole life in terms of access. It has not. The only time now, as far as mental health care, because there have been programs like Medicare, Medicaid that you know, if you you know me being a child, they're good for children. Now, if you're an adult. They're going to, it's going to be spotty as far as you're getting care and having barriers in that mental health care, but that's where institutions like mine and charitable organizations and hopefully churches can fill that, that chasm there. Um, but as a child growing up, now I know I really didn't have any issues, but as an adult, definitely, definitely. Medication is expensive. Uh, uh, Care is, is, is understaffed, is backlogged. So aside from the socioeconomic barriers, there, there, there are barriers as far as provider care and provider numbers. You know, I, I have to, I'm going to tread real lightly about how I explain this next, next thing I want to talk about because I, I mean, I have a real strict policy of not doing politics or anything political on my show. That's for every other aspect of my life. But, um, okay. You know, I have some personal experience with somebody who was very close to me who was diagnosed uh, as having bipolar disorder in early adolescence. And this person was very fortunate that they had parents who were very successful and, and uh, prosperous professionals who were able to send this person to private school at a private school where the private school was specifically equipped to deal with people dealing, you know, adolescents and teenagers dealing with with uh very serious mental health issues. And, and this was in a, around a large Midwestern city. And um, right. I, when you talk about things like social and economic inequality, you have to wonder what kind of services some other people her age uh, who may have lived in the, a different part of the city 
what kind of access they had and what kind of life outcomes could be expected from them and how many times in the likelihood that they would end up in the criminal justice system. And I just I don't think you can talk about dealing with mental illness and advocating for people as you're doing in the criminal justice system without addressing this very serious, you know, inequality um, that kind of leads me into I just kind of wanted to get that off my chest. This kind yeah, of leads and, I, and I agree with you. I'm sorry. I don't. I didn't want to interrupt. No, but, uh, I kind of wanted to seg into into what you're doing. Uh, talk about Meta um, and what you're doing, who you're working with, and whether or not you've been able to work with anybody who's responsible for making public policy to address some of these things. Right. Okay. Well, uh, with Meta, uh, we I've been doing this about three years. Um, we're I'm experiencing extreme growth right now. What I've been doing is I've been doing a lot of education and working with policymakers and networking so I get programs into schools, into uh, areas like South Dallas, poor areas where I can go out and teach and advocate and educate and work with different resource providers to provide resources in those areas where a child who may be having a problem at a school where the school is not equipped to deal with it, can send them to a facility or a clinic or a clinician in the neighborhood to get counseling, to get treatment, things like that, to where those issues can get addressed. Because in the scenario that you gave, the child that's in a fluent school is going to be probably going to be okay in terms of getting, you know, care, getting attention, at least getting looked at. Whereas that same child in a different circumstance is not going to get anything. In fact, probably going to get more negative reaction, especially in terms from the police, if something were to happen. Because I've been through that with my own son and his mental illness. You know, the police are going to get involved. And, and uh, you know, my son is bipolar, and he's 17, and he's had flare-ups. So I know what that's like. So I know how important it is to get to these young people, especially those that don't have the same socioeconomic resources. So we really have to address those areas uh, as well. But I want to get into the, to the schools and do some speaking. Uh, next year I'm starting, well, this year rather, I'm starting another venture called Becoming Unafraid where I go out and do public speaking and speak about my experiences, uh, go into great detail about some things, some of the things I've learned uh, to young people and older people uh, where I do some consulting and life coaching. But that, that, that's really the thing, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm hoping it will make people think about those children, and not just children, but adults our age who are still have always lived with mental illness but have never been able to get that resource they need to get them over their hump. Well, you know, something that just kind of occurred to me, you talked about working with some people in South Dallas. Now, I'm not – I actually have family in Dallas. I spent some time there over the course of my life, and I know that South Dallas is – uh, usually referred to uh, or, or look, it's kind of known as being the lower socioeconomic area, uh, high, high proportion of, uh, of racial and ethnic minorities. And I had read something uh, just sometime during the pandemic about the disparities in uh, access to health care in general, uh, just proximity uh, for people, you know, poor people of color. Is that something that is that also kind of holds true? I, I mean, are, are, are mental and behavioral health providers more likely to set up shop in, in some of the more affluent or middle-class areas and less so in the, in the poor and impoverished areas? Oh, yes, definitely. A lot of it had to do with, which is basically city's infrastructure. They're, you know, the further out they move, the more suburban areas, that's where all the traffic goes, that's where the new construction goes, and uh, that's where a lot of the public transportation 
is 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 going to be concentrated mostly in those poor areas. You still have the old bus routes. You still don't have grocery stores and things. So it's not much there. It's not much incentive for a healthcare provider to want to locate there. But that's one thing that I can say. I'm working with the South Dallas Employment Project, and one of the things that we are working on is trying to lure some of those providers back to that area. Also, we're, we're discussing food deserts in those areas because that's another huge thing when we talk about health, not just mental health. Food deserts in poor communities. I've been in some communities, there was no grocery store around. You know, you'd have to drive 30 minutes to go get groceries. So those are the kind of things that, that we're dealing with. And, you know, the, the, the thing about dealing with mental illness is that there's so much surrounding it and so much that touches it that you have to deal with, too that it's really more than enough work for everyone. <laughs> but the, the good moments of what I do are when uh, I speak to someone and they say, you help me or you understand. That's what makes this worthwhile because I know that person is going to be okay at least long enough to get them through this moment where they can get some coping skills, get a break, take some time, move forward. You know, hopefully plan for a future, get a job. That's what I'm out here to try to provide because that's what's been given to me. So that's what I want to give to everyone else. Now, George, we've talked about your interest in uh, helping people in the criminal justice system who are dealing with mental illness and, and, and the recidivism and the revolving door there. Do you have any specific experience or specific contact contacts in the criminal justice system? Have you been to jails and prisons? Uh, t- chat me up a little bit about that. I've, I've, personally, I've personally never been arrested or anything, but my father did several years. Uh, I have plenty of friends and relatives that have, and one thing I noticed that when they when they all kind of came out, they all kind of got stuck, uh, stuck in this in the status of, um, I don't know, just being, where they were just sort of wandering around, didn't have any aims, didn't have any goals, wanted resources, wanted a job, but, you know, because they had a record, people kind of shunned them, which, you know, I can, I can understand it, doesn't make it right, but I can understand it. But a lot of them had emotional and mental health issues they did not deal with. And a lot of them just didn't even deal with the trauma of being incarcerated and what goes on in there. That's very interesting, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're in a cage, you're in a violent environment. Just that in itself is, is traumatic, <laughs> and we don't even deal with that part of it. Um, because if you've known someone that's been incarcerated, if you know anything about them, if they fall asleep around, you can't even wake them up like you would someone else because you don't know what they've been through. Right. How about George? How so, about from an advocacy standpoint? Have you had an opportunity through your through your uh, advocacy organization uh, to get involved? Uh, well, yes, sir. I partner with a, a organization here called Oasis uh, through uh, Mr. Michael Lee, and I teach their recidivism course. Um, I facilitate their course with them a couple of days a week, and we deal with people who are incarcerated and do job training. And uh, I've been able to directly see the impact that I can have on people just by talking to them about experiences throughout the class. And we've had um, one gentleman get hired on the spot when we had a presenter come in for a job, and that felt really good. And not the fact that I had anything to do with it directly or indirectly, but just the fact I was part of that. That let me know, okay, I'm doing the right thing. If I keep going, then we can help more people like this. And we can see fewer and fewer people in jails. And one thing I wouldn't mind have have, have happen is that if some of these people that were incarcerated become mentors, 
I mean, you know, to take that experience and, 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 you know, use it to start businesses and use it to help the community. Now, that may be lofty, but if it happens one time, then I'm happy. If it changes one person, I'm happy. But the criminal justice system has to be changed because we have more people incarcerated than Hey, George. And that, that, that you can't say we have that, you know, most of these people are incarcerated on drug charges. I, I don't want to get political, so feel free to stop me. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that. No, no, George, and, I, and, and speaking, I'm speaking from personal experience. I worked property crimes for a lot of years. You can't separate yeah. uh drug addiction and people commit property crimes to, to fuel, to get money to feed their addiction. So no, you're, you're on the exactly. right path. Yeah. And, and, and that's what, and that's what, I, that's what I hope people start to see because to, to, to really solve a lot of these problems, it's going to, it's going to require people dealing with more than one thing at one time. We can't just address the mental health. We're going to have to address the socioeconomic part. We're going to have to address the, the, the parody. We're going to have to address just the having a dialogue because one thing now I'm noticing is that, People are now willing to have these difficult conversations where it's years ago, we would have never talked about them. Things that we talk about in terms of race now, when I was younger, we wouldn't have talked about them. And that's what's so beautiful about what we can do now and accomplish, and that's my purpose with, with Meta Association. Um, some of the things I'm also involved with, I'm on the board of directors of um, Sisters of Hope and Faith. That's headed up by Dr. Kimberly Sanders, and it's an anti-human uh, trafficking organization. Does a lot of good work, helps a lot of women and people that have been human trafficked. Uh, I also am a film producer, uh, working on a couple of documentaries and a couple of screenplays. Um, I work with several other groups that may be uh, considering a political run in the future. So I've, I've got a lot of work to do, and, and, and my purpose is to try to help people. Now, one thing I do want to say is that with, with, um, with the pandemic and everything, nonprofits, churches, charities, 501s have all taken a hit in terms of resources and finances. And uh, I'm not sure if you're comfortable with me saying this, but my biggest problem right now <laughs> it has, has been having finances to operate. And I've been doing this out of pocket for three years well, on to, this level. And that, to, yeah. to, to that end, let me just say that I, I do know, because thankfully you sent me, you do have a YouTube presence. Uh, if yeah. you want to, just for, for my listeners, you want to give a couple of links or you want to talk about your YouTube channel, places people sure. might be able to go online to learn more about what you're doing. And, and, and I'm going to imagine uh, there there would be somewhere on those links where they, they can uh, maybe help help you do what you're doing and with uh, some financial support. Great, great. Well, I do have a YouTube channel. It's Meta Association. Uh, has all of my uh, media appearances, information about um, what we do, interviews I've done, also some collaborative things, a bit of a network that I'm working on, and hopefully to have that launched by the end of the year. Uh, but I also have donation information also. Uh, we do have a cash app, but that'll be listed there and in the notes. So I hope that you will donate as it is needed to go ahead and facilitate what it is that we're trying to do. And of and course, I really appreciate it. And of course, when we air this episode, we'll uh, we'll get those links uh, and and put them on uh, our web page for the episode. George Brooks, thank you so much for being my guest on the Square Peg Podcast. This is a subject that uh, I'm, I'm giving some attention to this season. You're you're one of uh, three or four interviews I'm doing that kind of touch on some very similar issues having to do with mental health, uh, 
the men with mental health and, and removing the stigma. So thank you for being on my show. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed our guest today, George Brooks, and I hope you'll join us next week for another interesting, uh, hopefully interesting episode of the Square Peg Podcast. We'll see you later. Hey, if you are having a wedding uh, and you need a photographer or videographer, if you are a local artist in the southern New Mexico or West Texas area and you uh, need a video, a music video made, uh, a real good place to go is my, my friend Isaac Palafox's business, Palomore Productions. Uh, they're located pretty close to Las Cruces downtown. And uh, you can find them on Facebook. You can find them on Instagram and all those different places. Uh, you can also get them at uh, www.palamora.com for all your weddings, music videos, and anything else you need a professional videographer or photographer. The Square Peg Podcast. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo My Communications.